the teacher becomes empowered. So, how do we start? Hi, this is Aga and Łukasz, and this is Catching the Next Wave podcast, where we discuss the future of design. And much more. Adam Lindstrom, educational leader facilitating personalized learning environments, uses blended learning models, top-notch educational technologies, and project-based learning. How? Adam develops leaders and teachers to implement technology with purpose rather than for the sake of it. Husband, father, educator, student, surfer, and traveler. Adam, awesome to have you here with us today. Oh, thank you so much. This is an honor. It's pretty cool. Appreciate it. Thank you. Adam, we've noticed that you used to work on environmental issues and you switched to education. Why? The hindsight reflection is I was probably a little impatient. Um, at the time, I was working for an or- a governmental organization. So just the way things work, they're pretty slow. I didn't feel like I was in a place where there was a, a sense of urgency to for the work that I was doing. And I felt a real strong calling towards the ability to make an impact through education. So I was impacting you know, students and teaching teaching them about environmental issues or earth science issues. That role quickly led to being able to see an immediate impact um, on changing minds. And I don't mean in a sense of pushing any agenda, but just in the fact of teaching kids to notice their environment and you know, have a sense of awe and wow for the things that happen around them. And then a deeper understanding about why things happen scientifically to inspire either students to pursue interest in biology and earth sciences, environmental sciences. So at that time, that was the immediate quick switch to something that I had in the back of my mind when I was graduating uh, college as it was, you know, 2003, I was interested in or that career as an option. Then I noticed that you uh, started picking up this kind of supervisory roles. Yes, sir. So was it because the original pace was too quick? So you wanted to slow no, down? No, the, the, the pace of, uh, yeah, the pace <laughs> of a teacher is, is insanely fast. So I can totally empathize with those that are still in the classroom. I had some colleagues, you know, that encouraged me to take some educational leadership courses, you know, or master's degree courses. And that kind of led me to what degree gives me the most options to explore either building level leadership and the management and operations there or the curricular aspects. The role that I am in now uh, since 2015 is uh, strictly embedding educational technologies into instruction across all curricular areas. So the work I do now is very much focused on just implementing, I would say the best, but it's not necessarily the best in the sense of the definition of it, but it's the best in technology for our students and teachers at the time that we can afford and implement. I can't just jump on the next best thing because like that's initiative fatigue, you know, start something and then a year later, start something else and a year later, change to another technology, you know, that's not what it's about. You know, once we implement something and and roll it out, it's testing it for a while and making sure that we're getting some value out of it. And if not, and it's noticeable immediately, then we pivot and move to something else. A lot of those ideas and uh, new technologies come to me through the teachers, you know, some grassroots. They'll point us towards something and we go check it out and, you know, do the legwork of like, well, what's that cost per student? You know, what does it look like if for a pilot? How would it roll out across a, a district of eight schools, um, 5,000 kids? So it's it's uh, pretty neat. A lot of systems, processes that we implement to, to make those 
uh, changes right. effective. Yeah, I'm, I'm just on a feeling on a horse of the dilemma because this technology stuff is cool. But yeah, I wanted to explore something a little bit earlier in your career. And well, no, let me frame it differently. From my uh, experiences with anything that is state run or is regulated to some extent, there is usually quite a lot of attention to say the least to standards to the way that it is done here. And I wanted to explore this a little bit because I imagine that in education, there is quite a lot of that. On the other hand, you would like the changes to progress fast. Mm -hmm. And also uh, there is, I guess, an aspect of basically providing a certain level of quality. That's what I guess these standards are for. And then again, this mm -hmm. contrasted with, you know, people's or students, actually even teachers, self-development, uh, empowerment. How, how do you see those two aspects that are on the surface of it should be a little bit contradictory, right, right? Right. Two big differences. First is what criterion is expected for a 17, 18-year-old to get into college. You know, So they're look at someone's transcript and say, okay, this student is capable, ready, and can be admitted here. So I think there's some change happening there from what I've read. And big tech companies like Google are also saying, we're not looking at GPA or we're not looking at SAT scores or where you went to college. Now, I don't know if that's across the board, but there's been news about that. So second, when we talk about our standards of instruction, those are the standards that the federal government, state government deem we should be teaching. So there's value in those. Um, they've There's been mixed opinions about what it was uh, formerly called was common core standards in the US. And then they this certain states adopted them and they've changed them very, very slightly. The standards still value, I think a lot of value in how and what kids are expected to learn. You mentioned that companies like Google and other big players on the market start saying that SITs and all those evaluations of students stop becoming the criteria for hiring. What does it mean for education or what can it mean for education going forward? I think what they're looking for, I'm going to probably pull from things I've read and comes to mind now is more important skills that were formerly labeled as soft skills social social emotional skills underlying skills of perseverance character general work skills like critical thinking and being able to take an idea and make it something effective communication collaboration i believe these were all skills that were inherently taught through the educational models that we have across the world i just do believe that or at least i hope to believe that the organizations such as these tech companies and and others are just leaning more towards, hey, this person may have more to offer besides a 1500 on the SAT score. And although they might not have fit in the box of what school wanted or what standardized test someone had to take years ago, um, or currently even, you know, but I'm thinking of myself, you know, you still may be able to fit into a role that has a lot of ambiguity, um, requires a lot of collaboration, empathy, and the ability to take an idea and put it out to the world. Those are more valued potentially today, because I think everyone has 
the underlying ability to to do that, to be creative and to think critically and to combine creativity and perhaps science or engineering and the ability to work with others across the world now, not just in an office setting and to be able to, quote unquote, make an impact. So I, I think the impact education, the impact of that on education is that we need to, you know, I mean, I always did, uh, I go back to my teaching, you know, we always did collaborative activities and project-based learning. Yeah, I think in hindsight, probably the collaboration piece was there, but it wasn't necessarily evaluated. We would work with kids on how to collaborate, but it wasn't. There wasn't a lot of time spent on what collaboration looks like. And I think there's more. There's more opportunity there to have that. You know, where I had kids collaborating, like it was super early stages when we had Google Docs, you know, available to us, and I was one of the pilot teachers on that. So kids were collaborating face to face and in person, and then we talked about collaborating online, and that was another piece of it. But it wasn't video, right? But it was just collaborating on Google Docs. So there was just a short time spent on well, what does that look like? You know, how do we comment and how do we, you know, add value and revisions to each other's work um, in a respectful way? But it wasn't it wasn't like a whole lesson. It was just like a teachable moment. Here we go. You know. So I think those, and I know it's part of our digital citizenship. <laughs> standards and those standards um do have things like that working collaboratively across time zones perhaps you know and stuff like that and i think i think those types of uh work and standards are super important for kids today in fact my superintendent who essentially created a creativity and innovation initiative he said like we need to focus on that and highlight where it's happening because creativity is really always happening in the classrooms whether it's online or offline and we have some amazing art teachers and that do great work with students. But it happens not just in the traditional class that you would think creativity occurs, like art or related arts, music. It happens in language arts. It happens when a student solves a math problem a different way and they talk about it. It happens in a science class or one of our applied technology classes when they do a design challenge and they come up with a new way to build a bridge with different types of trusses or they... 3D print something that's super creative that they end up using in their home. You know, we have a lot of initiatives on that, that through our leadership and our, our team, we've, we've put some of that in place to not just talk about it, but make it a priority. Yes, there's standards and there's data and there's personalized learning and there's all that, but there's still creativity. So I think I'm in a good place where we're doing some really cool things. So sounds awesome. Huh? Yeah. So what I hear is that, you know, the standards more or less tell you what the kids are supposed to learn, but how you do this, that's up to the teachers. And we can really then in the, in the how part, explore the, the new skill or the new, the old skill set that is becoming more important now, basically. Yeah, absolutely. So standards for math, language arts, science, what have you, and even next generation standards for science actually teach more about process versus having to really dive into like, and memorizing a certain type of content. So those are the standards and things should students should learn and how we get there is up to the teacher to model and uh, help the student find their personalized path. So that's where the technology comes into play. Math, for example, we have a couple of different programs that help teach the standards and skills through a couple of different ways. One of those uh, programs that doesn't have any words. It's super conceptual. They move shapes and objects and numbers across the screen to demonstrate their understanding and move on to the next skill set. Whereas other programs are a little bit more adaptive and rigorous and the problems they present to the kids, but it works in conjunction with the student's performance. So there's amazing algorithms behind it that 
uh, scaffold the work for the student. So in a way it totally makes the teacher's life a bit easier in the sense of differentiating and personalizing that content. So, I mean, you have to take advantage of those programs now. I would say as a teacher, you should definitely take advantage of them if, mm-hmm. if you're able to. We all know that there is this change coming to education these days, going away from the industrial model, uh, coming to this new model that doesn't have a name yet. And of course, like the students probably react to it okay, because this is the only model they know. Yep. How how do the teachers and the parents react to it, to the, all those changes that they face? Most teachers are totally getting the power and understand the power of how technology can impact, you know, education and personalized learning. I do think, like I said earlier, you know, from my perspective as a leader, I, I'm not trying to put out here's one program we've been using for three years or more, and we're going to switch to another program with barely testing it, you know, or the the marketing, I believed it, you know, and it looks good. Let's do this. You know, um, there's opportunity to test those programs and let teachers know they're out there and Hey, try a free trial of it. If it's, if it's valuable, go for it, you know, let us know what you think. The, the parents I believe are, you know, are, are supportive of it too. On the whole, you hear occasionally conversations about screen time. And I don't mean necessarily in my district, but across the board, you know, comes in into the news and stuff. And, you know, I have kids too, they're two and four and they're not on the TV very much and they don't have an iPad. So I think there always has been a balance between what the education school and the system does and what you do as a parent. To that point, to like our students do not sit on a computer all day. They may use them sporadically throughout the classroom um, or each lesson. There's There might be a component of it, but rarely are they sitting behind a computer doing math work on, on one of those programs that I mentioned. So to dive into that a tiny bit more, what the, the blended learning model really looks like is the teacher implementing about a 15, maybe 20, depending on the discussion, 15, 20 minute uh, lesson. We like to use the gradual release model. That's an I do, uh, we do, and you do collaboratively and then you do independently model. And it allows the kids to build an understanding uh, the teacher to model her thinking, his thinking, uh, to do some work collaboratively, and then to be released to do it. And then when the students move on to some of the independent work, they're often able to have a choice about which program they might want to jump on to do some of those math skills. Um, or they go to another, we call them center or station or place in the classroom, and they're not necessarily at a desk and they're moving and working with some students together collaboratively. And then there might be another activity that has completely offline work. And then this teacher will probably wrap up the lesson together as a whole group or check in with everybody. And then while students are at other independent stations, the teacher is usually working in, we call it a small group setting with, let's call it three to six kids and differentiation and uh, scaffolding the lesson for that group of kids that are kind of all in the same ballpark, but there's still differentiation happening between those uh, students. So, I mean, the blended learning model is pretty complex in that there's a lot of work to plan and a lot of activities and a lot of information to collect and and review as a teacher. But that's where those programs come into play. So one of those activities might get automatically scored and the teacher has a real quick understanding of how that student did on those skills and that work. Yeah. So ultimately, I, I think the blended learning model is pretty easy to implement after a few attempts and well I wouldn't say just a few but you know some time on it and some professional development in that area and understanding of what resources and tools the teacher has that transformation I think happens almost like that aha moment of like oh okay like this is how it can work and this is how it flows and I don't have to 
stand and deliver instruction for 45 minutes or an hour and the kids can actively learn, actively participate in it, you know, and it has, has a lot of power in that. Once you do it and learn by doing it and then you can see the effects of it, it's kind of less of a, less of a change that has to happen. It kind of just becomes like, this is what we're doing and it makes sense to do it. At least how I've seen it in the, the, the schools I've worked with. That's impressive. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> it's kind of obvious in the hindsight, but like what I hear is that If you throw in technology into the mix, into the classroom, it doesn't necessarily take away a lot of effort from the teacher, which normally technology tries to do. It's just kind of refocusing the effort elsewhere. And and what you say, it's even more work at the beginning. But in the end, we hope that the outcome of this teaching process will be basically way different and, and better. Yeah, absolutely. So with any program, there's always a little bit of training or professional development that we offer either through myself and my colleagues um, or teachers that have been using it. You know, they become trainers as well, or also the vendor. You know, once you kind of learn the layout of a platform or how it works, essentially, you know, then it becomes a uh, part of your process. The teacher becomes empowered. I don't know necessarily UX, user experience, the way maybe a person who's formally trained in that is, but that's certainly one thing that we look at and that I evaluate is from a from my perspective, where how quickly and how easily and how clean and organized does the data and information look. Also from a teacher perspective, how quickly and easily can he or she get their class in and on that platform and doing the work. So the faster and the easier, the less clicks it might be for that. And the look of it, you know, usually impacts the perception and the mindset of the use of that program. We work a lot with our vendors, particularly the ones that we've had like a long-term relationship with where we've been using them for a long time. Like our district has been featured in some of those programs on their blogs or their newsletters and what have you because we're so focused on how we implement the program and get value from it. It's not just, hey, here's this program, go do it. See you later. You know, I'm going to come and check that you used it. It's not about that. And we, you know, I think since I've been there, we've made a strong focus from our superintendent, you know, make sure we have PD, make sure professional development, make sure we're, you know, really implementing these programs through a strong systems process of balance and checks and support. So a lot of the programs have all moved towards Google's single sign on which we're a Google district, we're a Google for education district, I mean. So we have Chromebooks and all the kids have accounts and all that. By having that SSO button, they're in and running in 10 seconds mm-hmm. versus you know a minute. Coming back to the educational initiatives that you are involved with or you're running, uh, there's quite an impressive <coughs> list uh, out there. S- some of them I was able to figure out, some of them not. <laughs> First of all, there was this initiative that you were running, which is called Creativity and Innovation Initiatives in the Classroom. And another one yep. was Design Thinking in the Classroom. Can you tell a little bit more about those initiatives? You know, I've been exploring design thinking for quite some time. Like I, I was looking at IDEO and the D School and Stanford, you know, so I had those resources and those ebooks that they put out so generously for us and for educators. There's the K-12, I think, D-Lab or whatever they call it, you know, so a bunch of educators, you know, in the K-12 area. And I and I never, I didn't go for, apply for any fellowships with them or anything like that. And I just kind of kept reading and exploring it. And one of my colleagues, you know, he um, he said it's it's probably reaching its peak right now as far as a buzzword in education. It might start to fade out in a year or two. So I don't want it to fade out at all because it's a really great model 
for instruction, for building empathy, for letting students be creative and innovative at the same time to go through the real world model of iteration and working with a real true life, either scenario or client. So engineering and design has kind of fit into the sciences in our instruction for at least four years now, maybe a little bit more. And so they do design challenges that are often problems in the content area that the teacher either has identified or presented the scenario. Now, design thinking brings in that piece of noticing and finding a problem in the student's own life or real world or school setting or community. And then going through the process, if the teacher is able to go and do the process of doing real life interviews and building and practicing empathy among students to help them craft an idea or a solution that solves the problem for the people they've interviewed. So design thinking is a great model for that, whether, you know, whether you're strictly using the D schools or IDOs or what have you, and use, you can put in different terms, but it's all the same thing. And starting with empathy is the, the most important piece there. And I think that's the going back to those uh, important people skills. That's the number one skill that kids need to learn today and adults do. And we all just need to have better empathy and that will lead to better solutions for problems, better um, understanding of people's perspectives, better collaboration, better global society, better local society. I mean, all those things wrapped up in it. So to support teachers, we've not just talked about it. The whole leadership team is reading a book from another educator and we're talking about that uh, monthly at our at our meetings. And then I've shared resources with with our teachers, not just online, but we did a what's called an ed camp. And that's where teachers go in and choose their professional development from a menu. So I brought in a colleague. He did uh, one hour talks and conversations around design thinking. And that was received really well. And that was for anybody. So if you're a math teacher or a language arts teacher or science, you can go in and join that. So that was really great. He'll be back again in February to do some training with our or just more discussions with our teachers. In the meantime, I've also supported that and kicked that off with the teachers that I solely manage their curriculum. So as you know, as my role is essentially still technology, but I do oversee the applied technology, engineering and design, and K eight technology curricular areas. So back in when I was in school or when um, the uh, even just a few years ago, the technology class wasn't called technology, it was called computers. You know, and then when I was in school, there were probably was computers and typing, right? You know, and it's like now like kids are all over and they're using Chromebooks and they're learning the technology skills in every single class. So you don't really need a class to teach computer skills or technology skills. Like so what we're doing there is trying to put in what we are, we're putting in a, a more design thinking uh, model that is um, project-based and the students are identifying problems. There's a little bit of a maker mindset there as well, but we didn't call it three years ago when we started it. We didn't call it a makerspace. We bought the materials to make sure it could be a makerspace, but not necessarily come in and have kids just uh, for a lack of better word, like not having a purpose. For a teacher that sees, particularly teacher that sees kids once a week, you can't have it be so like loose and, and all that. And you need to have still some structure. So 
to that end, you know, the engineering design curricular curriculum is essentially the the makerspace lab. You know, so we have Lego. You know, there's a Lego wall. You know, there is that space for like off the cuff creativity, but it's not not necessarily a free for all. Teachers still feel that they need their structure, and we need to honor that. Yeah, so design thinking comes into play in that setting and in, in those classes. Just by way of, uh, I think it was uh, either LinkedIn or an email. We got I, I got us an opportunity to have a matching grant for professional development on design thinking. So a little plug for this group was uh, it's called My Mind Spark Learning, and Mind Spark Learning is um, I think they're founded by or funded, excuse me, by Mordridge Family Foundation. So they're out in Colorado, and you know they basically gave us a matching grant. So for two days of PD, it cost us half the initial cost by way of their grant. So it was a great opportunity for those. 25 teachers that I work with in this curricular area. And it was super hands-on professional development. I learned a lot. My colleagues learned a lot. The teachers learned a lot. And they implemented it right away. And they all came out of it saying, this is the best professional development we've had in years or ever. That was like, oh, wow. Like I didn't do it. It was them. You know, I made, I was forwarding those emails as they were coming through back to the trainers because they did such a great job. That inspired the teachers to now run with design thinking because they practice the pieces of empathy, iteration, and, you know, radical collaboration. You know, they were doing it. So they were learning it and seeing the value in it. Yeah. So I'm super passionate about it. And I think it's the next wave of how instruction might look like or could look mm-hmm. like. You are also doing projects that are called Marlboro Marketplace, mm-hmm. which sounds to me a little yeah. bit like a hackathon for kids. This again was another idea from our superintendent, you know, Dr. Eric Hibbs, you know, he's he has a, like really great ideas, you know, and this was one of those. It was essentially like, hey, kids, you know, have a little bit of personal finance like standards throughout their career in our school district, but there's not a whole lot about entrepreneurship and all that. So it was for anybody who wanted to participate. It wasn't a mandated project. It was here, here's some ideas around it. And we put together um, basically some uh, resources for kids to use at home or in the classroom if the teacher found the time, which a couple teachers did through uh, 20% time. Well, I talk about that later, but essentially the marketplace was the culminating venue for kids to sell an idea or project or service. You know, so we gave examples like, hey, if you want to do photography later on in the summertime, because it was, I think the event was around the end of May, early June last year. And we'll do the same thing this year. It's going to be really fun where kids essentially, you know, have the ability to pursue a project or product on their own and they come to the school and sell it, you know. So it was at our middle school and it was this big event and we had a couple soccer fields filled with rows and it was like a flea market, you know, it was like a pop up shop. It was one and done, you know, and you wouldn't have known we were there the day after. And it was it was super fun. We gave the kids resources like contracts, if they wanted to partner up with a friend, everything from like, hey, how much money are you putting in for this to go to the store to get supplies or to do what you need to do? And like, I'm going to agree to this, you're going to agree to that. So it wasn't just handshake agreements. You know, we gave kids, you know, some of those resources to really... Um, to run with it. And 20% time was one of those other projects where we stole from Google. Essentially, they create the space for work employees to solve problems or pursue an interest. And so we essentially have done that through a few teachers that are interested in helping kids pursue their interests. So those that were doing a project in the marketplace have the opportunity to do their work in school during that space as well. So this year, 
our iteration on that will be that if a student doesn't have a product or a service to sell, the marketplace might not be the venue to showcase it. So we're going to create a second avenue, not 100% landed on the name yet. We have a couple uh, in mind, um, but essentially that second event will be a, a space for kids to showcase what they've learned or now teach their classmates or you know students in another grade perhaps or another school. If it's not at one school, it might be a district-wide location. So almost like an ed camp for kids. So if a student, I don't know, I, I keep going back to this example because I have a friend who's, whose son is really uh, skilled at this for such a young age, tying fly fishing knots, right? So imagine you know, you, that's what you practiced on or practiced and learned how to do. And you have buddies and friends in another uh, class or what have you. You're interested in that as a 12-year-old kid and you can go into that session or that workshop from this other student and learn how to tie a fly efficient, not something that I don't know how to do either. So I would go to that kid's class, right? So I mean, just to create a second space for the students that tried to write a novel or did a TEDx talk, you know, or something like that, that isn't a product to sell at a marketplace. So we want to create those authentic audiences for our kids. Those are the two kind of projects that kind of encompass like our vision mm-hmm. for that. I feel like stopping this podcast, starting over again on that idea alone. <laughs> that sounds so great. This marketplace idea is yeah, yeah. awesome. But pretty awesome. Thank huh? you. Yeah. And Thank there's you. one more. There's something which is called the Learning Lab Live. What is this one? The Learning Lab Live is something I kind of have been mulling on for quite some time. So essentially, uh, I guess it stems from kind of like my own path. And I, I didn't really connect the pieces till I did the All MBA. Kind of helped me get out of my own way on it. Help me see the value and I guess not help me see the value, but kind of crystallize, I guess is the better word, value of being a linchpin in my you know own organization, or at least embodying that mindset, whether someone calls me that or not, but at least feeling that way. So the learning lab, I felt like comes from the concept of uh, my own path to education, path of finding my way. So I do feel that school is often a bit too removed from real world authentic work. And I think that's where design thinking can come into play and we can leverage that in some capacity. But if you're 14, 15, you know, and I don't work in a high school, so I don't want to generalize it too much, but because there are community-based internships out there and there is opportunities, but those are those are super valuable, right? And if you don't have that opportunity to do an internship or get hands-on in either, in my case, environmental science or engineering or biology or one of these more traditional format or traditional topics of education where you do need a strong content area before you can become a professional or you jump into the professional world, what happens if you do that and you don't really like the work that you're offered or the work that's out there? So for example, um, I loved the fact that I did endangered species studies, but I did not like the fact that I had to do, let's call it uh, surveys in, and a lot of like, they were essentially trap and release. And so some of the work just really wasn't exactly engaging because part of that was like manual labor. And, and to some extent, I just didn't appreciate that. It, my mindset should have been like, this is me now saying this, but when I was 23 saying it, I should have been like, hey, I'm getting a workout and getting paid. And I probably wavered between enjoying it and not, but like it led to another opportunity. So I worked at the DEP and then I made maps and I was super creative and analytical and I love that. But then once that work kind of went away, I was like, hmm, this isn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. So I know you can't really control the work that you have to do. And I know you can't control every opportunity you get and that you land. But 
I do think you, if education could give kids the opportunity to explore the work before making a decision off leading off to college, that's super expensive or on a path that you might not really like. And after four years, you're like, whoa, you know, so for example, to my senior year of college, I finally had less of a science course load and was able to take photography. Loved it. Was like, this is amazing. Like I always knew I liked taking photos and and all that, you know. And so if I could have coupled photography with a business degree as a 19-year-old and leading off in a college, I probably would be in a different place. I'm okay with where I'm at right now and I'm super happy with that. But it, to that end though, like you look at the paths you can carve. And if you can gain more experience in it at an earlier age, you might be able to decide upon which direction to go to really follow your passions and interests and even opportunities, I guess, too. Because like you can't... The, the concept of following your passion isn't necessarily always um, fruitful in the sense of supporting your life. For example, like if I could just surf all day, that'd be amazing, right? But I'm not a professional surfer and no one wants to watch me surf, right? So I mean, to that end, like that's not a career path. But could I have... And this is what I talk about with kids too, with 20% time when we introduced it. You know, could you, could you blend all of your interests and like make something new? So could I have blended travel and surfing and photography and writing and business to leverage a career. I don't know. But if you're not given that opportunity at a young age, or at least encouraged to do it, then you might not ever get there. So the Learning Lab is to connect students and teachers and real world professionals with authentic projects that lead them to an understanding of that world, right? So imagine you get the chance to do a few of these projects in different uh, curricular areas for four years of high school or even younger, and you get to make a decision, all right, cool, this part of engineering is really neat, but that part's not that great, or I'm not interested in that, or this part of science is really amazing. Oh, wow, there's molecular biology. It's not just biology and and understanding the parts of a cell, or there's genetics, or what have you. So you might be able to pursue these other interests and test them before deciding upon college or a vocation. That's what the Learning Lab is trying to do. There's been some interest with it since I put the website together and put that out to the world. Um, I haven't been uh, marketing it or anything in the sense of the term because the interest actually is super challenging for me, for one person to to really honor and value the interest that people express in it. Now I'm testing it now and I'm working with someone you know, and some other people on it you know, to see if it might work. I think the places that do have an opportunity though to really take this idea and run with it are local businesses and entrepreneurs particularly rooted in, let's call it those skills that are important, communication and collaboration skills and creativity skills. Kids gravitate towards digital. Here's an example. Like if a local business needs social media marketing done, why couldn't a high school kid who knows social media take that and run with it and do it either for free or if the school has an internship, you know, paid-based program set up already? You know, doing work for free these days is... I, I can guarantee it's not only seen as generous, but super valuable and as a major highlight to someone's resume. That's what the Learning Lab is. And then my second iteration of that is I'm putting together a podcast that goes along with it. I've been interviewing different people on different career paths and hearing what they're saying. They have done to get to where they are. And and also they end we end each podcast with an idea and a project that a kid might be able to do to explore that. And what is the name of your podcast? Oh yeah. So it's just the learning lab. 
we'll see what happens. But that's another model or another way for kids to learn about careers. I'm trying lots of things, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned Alden BA already. How did Alden BA influence you? I guess it just, it really just crystallized and solidified the concepts of a generous community and empathy could look like in the real world, not just in a, uh, in theory. It also, I guess, personally helped crystallize what I could do, what I can do in my career, what I can do, what I could offer the world, you know, whether, whether it lands or not, that's not the point, right? It's just by trying things and it kind of helps anybody get out of their own way to some extent. But I, I do think the piece that's leveraged with all MBA that isn't necessarily in a book or in a, uh, like an online class that's done uh, individually is the, the community piece. It's just such a unique place. I, you know, like Kelly Wood, the provost and others say it's the best corner of the internet and it probably is. And then once you see it, you can't unsee it. You can't unsee it. And what are you going to do? When you think about all those changes in education, what scares you the most? Well, I'm going to steal from whoever said it. I don't know if it was really Einstein or not, but doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different thing. So, right, if we keep doing what we're doing and we still expect kids to be ready for the workforce and to create new things to solve the biggest problems we have today, global warming, water crises, food and and health issues, equity issues, everything from social and political issues down to scientific issues. Like we're all like of a mindset to help the world and make change. Like no, I'm not criticizing humanity, right? I'm just saying all of us are of that mindset. Let's just say we are, but we haven't necessarily solved those problems, right? So will this next generation coming through be the ones that solve those problems? Let's hope. And let's hope more and more people, whether you're in the school system, part of it, or just leaving or are in the workforce, right? We all find a way to like just reevaluate what we're doing to impact kids with the skills they need today. So I think what scares me is doing the same thing again. What excites me is trying new things and going into it with the mindset of it might not work, but we're doing it with a, a true strong vision and mission oriented towards improving the betterment of, of society in our world. So if, if we need uh, the change basically to, to roll over, what's the toughest part of this change in your, in your field? I, I think the biggest hurdle or challenge to all of that is really the way the educational models are set up because it comes down from essentially from what the governments feel is the way education should be. And you have maybe people far removed from it that are making decisions about standards or the way things should be or the way the look of it should be. So I, and culturally too, you know, so, I mean, it's, there's so much wrapped into it and to that end too, like I'll honor the fact that yes, the government does require or does request input from educators themselves. And there's a lot of collaboration, but, but to that end, like how do you make a larger systematic change without disrupting the, the culture entirely, or how do you enroll the entire culture into the new changes that take this innovative mindset? You know, that those are the biggest challenges, I guess. At this moment, I would like to ask you about one more initiative, which is called the Future Ready Schools Initiative. Could you tell a little bit more about this one? I mean, so Future Ready Schools is, I guess it's a U.S. initiative in a sense of like our, our districts, A, 
uh, committing to the Future Ready initiative and then B, evaluating the work they're doing uh, with teachers and students on a bunch of, let's call it, for lack of a better term, Future Ready standards, right? So a couple of those things where I know we did really well were in like the use of technology in the classroom, right? But then to that end, where I think a lot of schools probably do fall short is in that authentic connection to the community, you know? So, I mean, that piece is like the learning lab is like certainly trying to close that gap. So essentially that's what Future Ready Schools is. It's a district-wide commitment to that concept of educating kids towards the skills and the, the mindsets of what's needed for the future. Suppose you have unlimited funds. Mm. Where do you channel it to basically propel or help out uh, that change? Oh man, it'd be it'd be towards a model and a way to connect kids to authentic work and authentic learning opportunities. Because wrapped up in that, you're meeting all the standards that governments want us to, you know, the State Department of Ed and the U.S. Department of Ed want us to meet. So I'm confident that teachers are creative and able to still meet standards, but capitalize on those connections with community or global based learning opportunities. I think ultimately wouldn't it be neat to like cripple the self-help book industry, <laughs> right? If we all just figure it out, nothing against that, you know, I mean, there's so much value in so many of the thought leaders. It's kind of a joke, you know, but I mean, just if we could all just be happy in our career and in our work that we're doing and making an impact and feeling a part of a community, I think we all win. How could designers help with setting up a better educational model? You know, if you look you look in a classroom, right? It's super colorful. There's probably desks and chairs. There might be some rugs for kids to sit on, some beanbag chairs, right? But how might that that physical space look different? Look innovative, create foster creativity, foster safe space. I think you see a lot of let's call it comfy and inviting spaces in the elementary classrooms, right? Elementary teachers and teachers in general are designers because they're designing the learning experience. But I think I think there's a lot of conversations about space, like the learning space itself. Is it collaborative? Is it fostering connectivity? Is it innovative? And that is it does it really help the kids like move around and like I don't think anyone does well sitting at a desk all day, right? You know, and I think there's conversations about that and it's moving away from it in some capacity, but that's one opportunity. And I think another is designing online learning environments that foster things like this, bringing in video collaboration and invite just that community connection piece. Um, and how about even like making sure that the space is, is in such a way that like allows for that integration of the community as well. The local business has an impact on what's happening in the school or the classroom and not just through donation or PTA, all valuable, but uh, parent-teacher associations is what PTA is. So like among all those, like how do we wrap it all up into a true designing a true community learning environment? Quite some challenges for, for the profession. Oh, Sounds yeah. good. <laughs> just to wrap up, you wrote once in one of your posts on It's Your Turn, Uh, what's the worst that can happen in all your professional ad adventures? How would you answer this question to yourself? The worst that can happen is attempting something and then living with regret. People say like, oh, don't live regret or have no regrets. or, Well, the only way you can do that is by trying things, I think. So what's your personal empowerment? What empowers you? 
in your life. Yeah, I'm going I'm to steal uh, somebody's phrase. There's an educator who has his own podcast, Started Up, uh, Don Wetrick, and his thing that he says to kids, he teaches an innovation class and it's opportunities are everywhere. So that's my, my mindset. If you bear in mind that the, uh, the people who listen to this podcast, they are not necessarily educators like you, but not, not necessarily designers either. If you could recommend a book for them to read. So if you're going to go fiction, I'd go The Alchemist. It's kind of a myth, a legend, a super fiction book. And it just kind of helped me create a story of possibility. So that book was super exciting for me to read. And and it's old. It's like, you know, a pretty old book. Um, as far as nonfiction, I'd say... I'll, I'll throw in Lynchpin because it was definitely a book that it like impacted me in a couple of ways. But, um, and then another business book I'd say was, uh, let my people go surfing by Yvonne Schonard from Patagonia. I read that like years ago when it first came out, because by way of surfing, just kind of coming on my radar, you know, but just a great book on how he's structured his business or structured Patagonia and, and his life and, has held true to his vision and mission of environmentalism and impacting the world in a positive way. Like the first company to be a part of 1% for the planet, you know, I mean, just those things about running a business, but also impacting the world in a positive way. So, I mean, those, those couple books have uh, impacted me. Do, do the honors of asking the last one. Okay. The question is your life motto. Be present, live every day to the best of your ability. Thank you so very much. It was a fantastic yeah, this, conversation. This was you had yeah. really amazing questions. Thank you for digging in there. And uh, yeah, really giving me the opportunity to speak about all of this. It's It's been pretty cool to reflect on the fly with you with you right now. So thank you, Ega. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Catching the Next Wave podcast. We would love to hear from you on Twitter at Malka6 and at DLS6. You can find more details on www.catchingthenextwavepodcast.com. And we all just need to have better empathy.